Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. As interest rates in Australia have fallen and investors start looking to sources other than cash and term deposits for yield, we've started talking more about alternative types of fixed income. Because this isn't a space a lot of retail investors have really had a lot of exposure to, and credit markets can seem rather opaque and boring relative to equities, they're pretty well understood, they get a lot of press, it's really important to understand some of the risks perhaps that are related to credit markets. To talk about some of the risks investors should be thinking about, I have Gopi Karun of Ardea Investment Management with me. Ardea manages fixed income portfolios and also the ActiveX Real Outcome Bond Fund via the ASX, which is a, a listed ETF in the fixed income space, not that common. Gopi's recently penned a piece talking about the major risks facing fixed income over the next 12 months. Gopi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Gemma. So you've worked in fixed income markets for quite a long time now. Do you think the risks are really well understood by retail investors who haven't necessarily had a lot of exposure to this space uh, and maybe also by professionals? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, um, so I grew up here in Sydney, but I've actually spent most of my career in Europe and Asia. And what you find in those markets is uh, fixed income as an asset class is really well understood, uh, not just by professionals, but even retail. It's quite well understood. It's not uncommon for retail investors in those markets to be buying bonds. You're right. Um, what I found um, when I came back to Australia was that um, this market historically has been quite equity and property centric and fixed income isn't as well known, partly because there just haven't been a lot of bonds outstanding in the Aussie market up until, say, five, ten years ago. Um, what I found from talking to retail investors over the past year is that um, I think the, the basics are pretty well understood. Um, the understanding of what fixed income is trying to achieve is pretty well understood. I think what uh, might not be as well understood is some of the nuances around or how much risk really is involved. Um, every bond isn't the same. The risk profile varies a lot. Uh, you made that comment about fixed income being perceived as boring, which it is, which Sorry, is absolutely, very harsh, which is very absolutely harsh. true. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know what a lot of your listeners might not, not know is um, take something like Aussie government bonds, pretty boring sort of asset class. Over the past 12 months, they've generated a return of uh, 11% just from holding them passively. That's an equity type return. But the flip side of that should be, should be a clue that there's a lot of risk involved as well, potentially. So I think it's these nuances that, that aren't necessarily as well understood. So that is fascinating, I think, for probably everyone to think about is you go, well, there is, it's hard to perceive an asset that would have less risk for an Australian investor than an Australian government mm-hmm. bond, right? So the idea that effectively your, your lowest risk asset can give you 11% is very yes. confusing for the average yes, person. Absolutely. And what that comes down to is how you define the word risk. Uh, So what most people think of when they think of a government bond being low risk is they're thinking about credit risk or the risk that the bond issuer um, gets into some sort of financial trouble and fails to repay the bond. Clearly for the Australian government, that's a very, very low risk. Uh, But what a lot of people don't appreciate is that government bonds also carry a lot of interest rate risk, uh, which we call duration. Um, Now, if, say you take a 10-year Aussie government bond as an example, 
Um, if you are truly going to buy that bond today and hold it for the next 10 years until it matures and pay no attention to the price in, in the meantime, then that interest rate risk is irrelevant for you. But what we find is most investors do care about what happens in the, in the interim and bond prices, just like equity prices, move around a lot. And the longer dated the bond is, the more interest rate risk you have, the more duration risk you have, which means the more prices move around. That is how Aussie government bonds have been able to deliver 11% over the past year. Those prices have moved a lot. It's, um, it's extraordinary, I think, for people to think about that, particularly in an environment where yields are falling so quickly uh, and interest rates are falling so quickly. So one of the most obvious risks that I think people would understand intuitively, but I'd love you to explain it, particularly the term that you used, is this idea of a vanishing yield cushion. Sure. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And that's directly relevant to what's happened to Aussie government bonds over the past year. So um, when we think about fixed income at a high level, um, about the role that most investors expect fixed income to play in their portfolios, it's really two things. So the first one is to provide um, a reliable, stable source of income. Um, and the second one is to act as a sort of um, defensive cushion in your portfolio. So basically something that will do well when equities do badly, essentially, that's what it is. Now, with conventional bond investing, yield, is really important to actually meet those expectations. So by yield, what we mean, simplifying a little bit, but yield basically means the interest income that your bond pays you. Um, the yield is really important uh, in a conventional fixed income fund, which is very reliant on yield. Um, so for the first point, which is generating interest income, well, obviously the higher yields are, the more interest income you're going to get. The lower yields are, the less interest income you're going to get. That's relevant now because yields have dropped to very, very low levels. The other thing is the defensive element that people expect. Um, so this is where we start to get a little bit into the complexity of fixed income and the idea of duration risk. But the way bonds work um, essentially is there is an inverse relationship between yields and price. What that means is when bond yields go down, bond prices go up. That is why Aussie government bonds have generated an 11% return over the past year. Bond yields have collapsed to record low levels. Bond prices therefore have risen to record high levels. Um, so what we mean by the yield cushion is the amount of yield that you have um, in, a, in a bond or any kind of fixed income investment. When the yield cushion is large, you get lots of income, mm -hmm. but also you have the potential for yields to come down, i.e. prices go up, to act as a defensive buffer to protect you, um, say, when equities are falling. A good example of that was 2008, so the financial crisis. So what happened then? Um, over that crisis period, peak to trough, Aussie equities dropped about 55%. It's a pretty substantial fall. Over that same period, if you had just passively held Aussie government bonds, you would have made something like 15 to 20%. That is a pretty good defensive buffer to help offset those equity losses. But here's the thing, back then, Aussie bond yields were in the 7% region. The RBA's cash rate, interest rates in Australia were at six and a half. The yield cushion was really large. So when the crisis hit, not only were you collecting that 7% income, there was a lot of room for yields to come down and bond prices to go up to give you a capital gain that turbocharged your return over that period. Fast forward to today, yields, so the Aussie government bond index yielding you about 1% if you're lucky. Uh, the RBA has cut the cash rate to 1% as well. That yield cushion isn't what it used to be. Therefore, looking forward, um, you have to really question whether bonds can work the same way in terms of providing you income and defensiveness as they have in the past. 
So I think that makes a lot of sense to people. One of the things that is quite interesting is because Australian investors will tend to hold effectively cash and term deposits as their defensive play, and they're not looking for like a bonus uplift in the value of Mm. them to offset that downturn in equities. They're just expecting it to stay still. Mm. If it just stays still, that's a downside better than losing 55%, uh, as some of us did in 2008. Um, Hopefully we held on and got out the other side. So do you think that people have understood that with that yield cushion falling away, vanishing, as you say, Mm. the risk is then somewhat higher to that portfolio that they're holding, if they're holding it at all? Because that's the other question, whether they are actually holding it as retail investors. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a really good point. Um, And this is a conversation we have with a lot of our institutional investors. So most of our investors... um, historically have been um, Aussie super funds, government entities, insurance companies, so professional investors, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only more recently that we've come out into the wholesale and retail market. But what we talk to about um, with those investors is this idea of the vanishing yield cushion. And can fixed income still play the same sort of defensive role that it has in the past? Um, The main points I'd make there are, firstly, if if you're going to use fixed income in your portfolio um, to diversify risk in some way, Um, look beyond the label and look at exactly what the asset you're holding is, or if you're invested in a fund, what the fund is actually investing in, because all bonds are not the same. They behave differently Mm -hmm. in different environments, depending on the amount of interest rate risk they have and the amount of credit risk they have. So who is issuing the bond? Um, The other thing that we keep coming across with just as much as with our institutional investors as, as with our wholesale and retail investors is you mentioned this barbell type of portfolio where you've got equities, maybe property on one side, and then you've got TDs on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of a tolerable mix when interest rates were higher. With interest rates now dropping to very, very low levels, what we're finding is holding large amounts in those TDs um, is becoming very dilutive for overall portfolio performance. And so we're finding that investors are now coming under more pressure to find yield uh, somewhere. So we are seeing exactly the same thing when I speak to investors, uh, and you were at the ASX Investor Day, uh, you know, when I talk to investors at, at retail investor days and so on, when we have webinars and people send us emails, we get this question all the time, which is I have literally $250,000, $300,000 in cash, which is 25, 30, 40% of my portfolio. And I've been hanging on to that partly because it is my defensive component, partly for liquidity to pay pension payments for a lot of our self-managed super fund investors, and partly because it was giving me an income stream I could rely on, but I can't rely on that anymore at 1%. Yeah. Um, We see exactly the same thing with our institutional investors as well. Um, As cash rates have gone lower and lower, they're under more and more pressure to try and get a little bit of extra return, a bit of extra yield from somewhere. Um, The conversation we have with them around that is... Firstly, about compensation for risk. So if you're going to go uh, and move out of term deposits into some other kind of fixed income asset, it might be government bonds, it might be corporate bonds, i.e. bonds issued by companies, it might be something a little bit more exotic like loans uh, or RMBS, um, which are mortgage securities. All of these things, perfectly valid investments, but it's important to understand that the extra yield they offer you comes with extra risk. Now, that idea of taking more risk um, to get a higher return is very fundamental in finance. There's nothing wrong with it. 
Um, what we talk to our investors about is compensation for risk. Are you getting adequately compensated for the extra return that you're getting uh, and the extra risk that you're taking? Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing we talk about is suitability. So maybe that risk is well compensated, but if you are going to use it as the defensive bit of your portfolio, is it actually going to behave that way when you need it to behave that way? Um, so going back to your earlier points about risks in fixed income, um, we, we touched on interest rate risk. The other type of risk that you have in fixed income is what's known as credit risk. Um, so that really comes down to uh, who is issuing the bond that you're buying. If it's a high quality government like Australia or the US or Germany, um, that credit risk is really pretty minimal. But if you start going into um, corporate bonds, which is bonds issued by companies, um, you know, companies can get into financial trouble at some point and may not be able to pay back that bond. Um, that's credit risk. Um, the amount of credit risk will vary depending on the company. Now what we've found, a big theme that we've seen across fixed income over the past 10 years is that as rates have gone lower and lower and lower, there's been this immense uh, drive to reach for yield. Now in conventional fixed income, there are only two ways you can increase your return when rates go low. One is you take more interest rate risk, so you buy long dated bonds. Even that is becoming harder because in many parts of the world, even very, very long dated bonds pay no yields anymore. An extreme example, recently Germany issued a 30 year government bond, uh, not at zero, but at a negative yield. So you're taking 30 years worth of interest rate risk and you're getting paid nothing for it. Yeah. So or getting that, a little bit less back than you gave well, them yeah, in the first exa place. Exactly. You're mm. guaranteeing yourself a loss if mm. you hold that for 30 years. So that interest rate lever has become a really difficult one. So what we've seen is people shift to the credit lever. Now again, no, there's nothing wrong with that inherently, but it's important to understand that if you're getting extra yield by buying corporate bonds or RMBS or loans or whatever it is, you're taking more risk. So you need to think about whether you're getting compensated for that risk. Our view is that in the early stages of this cycle, coming out of the financial crisis, compensation for credit risk was really good. You were getting paid a lot of extra yield to take credit risk. What's happened since then is so much money has flown in to these markets trying to get yield, it's eroded away a lot of that compensation. So that compensation isn't what it used to be. So that's the first thing. The second thing you need to be aware of is that credit risk is inherently correlated to equity risk, meaning they can both go down at the same time. So if you think about your typical um, Aussie portfolio that one of your clients might have or one of your listeners might have, could be Aussie equities, Aussie property. And then if you're moving out of your term deposit into Aussie corporate bonds, loans or RMBS, what would happen if Australia went into a recession? It's pretty likely that all of those things would fall at the same time. So it's really important to think about suitability of that investment in the part of the portfolio that you're allocating it to and is it really going to behave in that defensive way when you really need it to behave that way? So my next question was going to be for you that bonds and equities are supposed to be inversely correlated yes. and that's the entire point sometimes of holding credit and, uh, and fixed income securities that people yeah. might not otherwise be super excited about, right? Yields are low, but I will hold them because they give me mm -hmm. that defensive component to my portfolio. And you've just told us that that may well be uh, unlikely at the very time you need it. Yes, depending on what kind of bonds you're holding. So this, this goes back to the point about looking beyond labels. So all mm -hmm. bonds aren't the same. Mm -hmm. um, it really depends on who is issuing the bond, what type of bond it is, 
Um, you made the point that um, on the credit side of things, um, credit is inherently positively correlated to equities. Um, and for the simple reason that it's the same companies issuing the bonds in the mm. corporate bond market that are in the equity market. So if you have a recession, uh, corporate earnings go down, uh, the environment becomes tougher, those companies are going to get affected and therefore their bonds will reprice accordingly. So bond prices move around just like equity prices. Um, we got a small taste of that in the fourth quarter of last year when equities went down a lot. Credit markets also incurred significant losses. Um, so that's one thing you have to think about is, um, you know, what type of bonds are you buying? High quality government bonds mm. are more likely to do well in that scenario where equities do badly. Um, bonds that are very heavy on credit risk uh, may not do so well in that kind of environment. Now, complicating things even more. <laughs> You're not selling it, I have to say. You're absolutely terrifying everybody, but yeah. <laughs> is that even government bonds themselves mm. don't always have that negative correlation to equities. Um, it worked really well in 2008 during mm. the financial crisis, but um, if you go back to early last year, mm. um, it was actually the fear of rising interest rates and the resulting volatility in bond markets that actually caused equities to fall in the first place. Mm. So that relationship between bonds and equities, if you look over long periods of time, um, is really not a stable one. Um, so again, what we talk to our investors a lot about is having risk balance in your portfolio. So having lots of different things that are going to behave in different ways in different environments so that not everything is going down at the same time. So that's clearly what most of our investors will be trying to achieve. It's interesting that you reference the fear of rising interest rates, which is hilarious when we think about it now, right? I mean, it was only 18 months ago when uh, certainly, I mean, NAB has a very well-regarded economic team mm -hmm. uh, who were saying we're expecting two rate increases in the next 12 months yes. and we're expecting this and we're expecting this and they were absolutely on the money with all of their peers and then now we're like, oh no, we're expecting another cut <laughs> before the end of the year, um, which goes to show how quickly things can change uh, in the market and bond prices respond accordingly, right? Yep. So people will have seen how dramatic portfolios, uh, dramatically portfolios have, have shifted in that time frame. You've mentioned negative yields as well, which is something we've not had to deal with in Australia yet. Is it affecting the kinds of portfolios that you guys hold? Um, so the, the way that we invest, um, so we use uh, the same high quality government bonds like Aussie government bonds or US treasuries that you will see in any government bond fund. Um, we generate returns from them in a very, very different way. Um, so our style of investing is, is called relative value investing. So it's a very specialized type of investing and that's all we do at Ardea. That style of investing is completely agnostic to yields. So it makes no difference to us uh, whether bond yields are high or low or even negative. Um, we're not generating our returns by buying those bonds and holding them for the income. Uh, what we are doing is we're looking for structural mispricing between very similar things. Um, it gets back to the sort of very fundamental concepts around market inefficiency. Um, so, um, you know, a finance textbook will tell you that if you have two assets, it doesn't have to be fixed income, any two assets that have exactly the same risk and return profile and they're linked to each other, they should be priced exactly the same way. Uh, in the real world, mm. uh, our markets, which are interest rate markets, are horribly inefficient. Mm. Um, so you constantly get these situations where there's small mispricings between different government bonds or related securities. So our whole investment approach is based around uh, exploiting that specifically. 
Um, and that is completely independent of yields. So it doesn't matter to us whether yields are high or low. It doesn't matter which way rates are going. Um, you know, we don't really try to predict uh, whether the RBA is going to cut or uh, raise rates. It doesn't really matter very much for us. Uh, nor does it matter what equity markets or fixed income markets are doing more generally. Um, we focus on these very specific, uh, what we call relative value mispricings. So one of the risks you talk about is the asymmetry of interest rate duration risk. Can you explain that in simple terms and then also why it matters? Yeah, sure. So we talked earlier about interest rate risk uh, in bonds. Um, so there's an inverse relationship between bond yields and prices. So when yields go down, bond prices go up. Um, now, um, at the start of this, um, of this podcast, I said that um, if you just passively held Aussie government bonds over the past 12 months, you've made about 11%. So almost it's a, that's an equity type return that you've made. The reason the returns have been so great is that yields have come down a lot and therefore bond prices have gone up a lot. Now, you hear, you all, you'll often hear people in the equity world talking about stocks being rich, about valuations being too rich. The thing is, in the equity world, is even if valuations are rich, there is really no fundamental limit to how high stock prices can go. It's different in the bond world because there is, well, there are limits to how low bond yields can go and therefore how high bond prices can go. So what happens is when yields are very high, the interest rate risk around owning long-dated government bonds or taking duration risk is somewhat more symmetric in the sense that yields could go higher, but they could also go lower. So back in 2008, when Aussie government bonds were yielding 7%, yeah, maybe they could go higher and you could have bond prices drop, but just as easily they could go lower as well. Come to today, Mm. where yields are already down at 1%, that's what we mean by asymmetry of duration risk. The potential for bond yields to keep going lower and lower as you're getting closer to that zero level is a lot less than the potential for them to reprice back higher to normal levels resulting in capital losses. So just to put the math into perspective, for Aussie government bonds to be able to deliver that same 11% return over the next 12 months, you would have to have the yield on those bonds drop to about minus 1.5%. So clearly a pretty unrealistic extreme scenario. Whereas if yields went back just to where they were, let's say October last year, you're looking at a loss of about six to 7%. So that's what we mean by asymmetry. And that's what makes chasing bonds at very low yields Mm. or high prices very different to chasing stocks at rich valuations. Stocks can keep going up and up, bonds can't. That momentum play is a lot less exciting. Yes, uh, absolutely. A lot more terrifying, depending on which way you look at it. So you talk about the natural lower bound, which leads into the other fascinating place we find ourselves, which is negative yields around the world. And there's two sides to that, where people are not just paying banks to deposit. And you've got an example of that, Mm -hmm. which is kind of extraordinary. I mean, some people do feel like that anyway with transaction fees and that sort of stuff. But let's just say the actual payment to deposit, but also being paid to borrow. Yes. So we're seeing, because of the actions of central banks around the world, pushing interest rates to extreme levels, um, undertaking uh, quantitative easing, which is basically the, the idea that they will step into the market and start buying bonds. They've, done, they've been doing this with the intent of trying to stimulate economic growth. The theory being that when you reduce rates, you um, incentivize people to borrow for investment purposes. So companies can go out and borrow money cheaply to build a new factory and so on. And you incentivize consumers to go out and borrow money to buy stuff. And all of that can start stimulating economic growth. That's the theory. 
Um, what there's a growing sort of body of, of work around this that's sort of suggesting that that works only when the starting point of interest rates is high to begin with. Once rates get really, really low, cutting them even further starts to have more distortionary side effects than benefits. So some of the side effects that we're seeing at the moment are things that you've alluded to, where you have weird dynamics where German government, for example, issued a 30-year bond at a negative yield. So that effectively means that bond investors are lending money to the German government and are paying the German government for the privilege of doing that. You'd have to be extremely fearful about the economic outlook to be happy to take a loss over 30 years. Yeah. Like that's, that's a really dark view of the future to go, I'm going to give you $100 and you give me back $99 in 30 years. Yeah. And, that, and, I, and I feel that's the best use of my money. Yes. That's, so that, that that's absolutely, quite pessimistic. Yeah, but that is one of the reasons. So you might wonder, why would any rational person mm. uh, invest in a bond at a negative yield? So one of those reasons is exactly what you've alluded to. You can think of it as a safety premium. Mm. Uh, basically, people are saying, I'm more concerned about my return of capital than my return on capital. Yeah. So I'm willing to park my money for 30 years with the German government, knowing that you know they're not going to default, they'll give me my money back, even though it's going to cost me um, you know a little bit uh, to hold it over that period. So I'm willing to pay that safety premium. We can see how that makes sense in isolated circumstances. At a widespread level, it's pretty hard to understand how there is such a huge demand for a safety premium at the same time that equities are at record high levels. The two things seem kind of inconsistent uh, to us. What you find as a knock-on effect of this is that you get severe distortions in pricing in other parts of the market. So we've seen bizarre things in Europe where um, we talked earlier about compensation for credit risk. Not only is the German government borrowing money at negative rates, we're now seeing corporates, so companies, borrowing money at negative rates. So Nestle, the food company, issued a 10-year bond uh, recently at a negative yield. Now, you can look at Nestle, it's a big company, it's doing really well, strong balance sheet, but a lot can change in 10 years. Even more bizarre, recently we've had um, what are known as high yield bond issuers. So these are bonds issued by companies that have weak balance sheets mm. and therefore they have a material risk of actually going default. Mm. Um, they've got bonds now trading at negative yields. So you, what the ECB and other central banks have done by pushing rates really, really low is they've completely distorted the pricing of risk. And that's creating a lot of misallocation of capital in our view. I. I don't think there's a person listening who wouldn't agree with that to some extent. Uh, we saw the home loan figures come out for Australia yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday 10th, 10th of September. Uh, so recent lending figures and lending jumped 5.5%. Uh, I think it was in July, the July figures that came out. I don't think it was August. Anyway, 5.5% after the RBA cut rates. We see people just went, oh, fab, okay, I'll go out and buy a bigger house. Like that's effectively what happened. Right, rates are down. Let's all rush out and buy a bigger house. And you think there was nothing that changed in the fundamental value of housing between June and July, but the cost of borrowing dropped and therefore people rushed out and yeah. bought more. Now, I'm alluding to the fact that prices increased, but there has been good data to suggest that prices are coming back. That's astonishing in itself. I mean, it's 
there are some fundamental reasons for the increase in house prices in Australia, but there's also a hell of a lot of reasons supported by RBA data and research that say that, frankly, is the cost of borrowing. There's been a very large driver of that. Yeah. I mean, what what this speaks to is a a broader um, sort of thematic, which is that if you go back to 2008 and coming out of the financial crisis, when central banks all around the world cut rates, the intention of cutting rates in the first place was to stimulate real economic activity. Mm. What it seems like has happened is rather than stimulating real economic activity, low interest rates have had a much greater effect on asset prices. So pushing up asset prices to arguably unsustainable levels, and that's propped up by lots of borrowing at low rates. So then the question is, what happens if rates go up? And we got a small taste of that last year when the US started to raise rates and markets didn't like it Everybody very much. Everybody lost their minds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, so um, one of the big vulnerabilities we see going forward is you've got all of this debt that's been raised at very, very low levels. That's propping up asset prices. All of that whole paradigm is contingent on central banks keeping rates really low for a very long time. Now, they've signaled that that's what they want to do and they're willing to do. The question is, what if something happens to take that matter out of their hands? Well, what could happen? Inflation. So if inflation comes back in any kind of meaningful way, I mean, it's very low right now. Yeah. But if inflation was to come back, um, remember that central banks, their primary objective is to maintain price stability. So if inflation was to come back in any kind of meaningful way, they would have no choice but to start raising rates. And then that sort of makes that whole um, foundation on which asset prices are built uh, start to crumble. Start to look a little bit shaky. Can you think of any major catalyst for a massive drive in inflation? It's been so. It's really interesting having met a lot of the listeners of the podcast over time, and some of them will remember all of the things that you're talking about, and some of them will never mm-hmm. have seen that. Yeah. I remember when my my sister was first looking at borrowing to buy a house. And she did all her calculations at an interest rate of 6% and thought she'd been very, very mature and wise perceiving that rates might go higher. I was like, are you joking? My first rate was nine. <laughs> I was like, that's not how it starts. You know, yeah. Trying to explain to her that, but then my parents laughed at us both and were like, well, we were at 17 at one point. You know, things change over time. So. Absolutely. We've not seen major drivers of inflation in Australia for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, um, for a, a lot of your listeners, um, you know, they haven't really seen it in their lifetimes. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Mm. Um, so, you know, what could drive it? Um, yeah, there's lots of arguments on both sides. I mean, we, we you know, the nature of what we do at our day is non-directional. So we don't try to predict these things or take a view on these things. Um, what we can see is a market or an investor um, base that's become highly anchored to low inflation. Mm. So everyone thinks inflation is low uh, and going to stay that way for a very, very long time. And you can see that in the way that inflation is priced in certain parts of the fixed income markets. Um, That doesn't mean that it can't come back in some form or another. Um, Mm. And we see some pockets where you're starting to see some pressure Um, One of those pockets will be um, the labor market in the US. So um, the US economy had been doing pretty well. Um, Employment growth in the US has been really strong. So as unemployment has fallen, competition for workers has gone up and we've started to see wages rise. Now, nothing crazy yet, um, but that's the kind of thing that if it starts to spiral, could feed into inflationary pressure. Um, So, you know, what could cause it? That could be one thing, there could be other things, um, but you know, who knows? 
the way we look at it is markets are not at all priced for that. Yeah. Uh, markets are fully priced for this environment of low rates and low inflation to remain for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. It's, a, it's an extraordinary world. It is. I find it absolutely fascinating to observe. And I also find it really fascinating that, uh, particularly with housing, where you go, I appreciate it's an asset class, but it's also a social good, that if you're not factoring that into your perception of inflation, mm-hmm. you're kind of missing, <laughs> you're missing the story a little bit for the average human. Yeah. It's um, from an economic perspective, sure, it's not driving inflation, but, for, but from a personal perspective, a lot of people are feeling a lot of inflation. That's, I mean, that's been a big criticism of the official inflation statistics that get published. Mm. So those statistics are showing that inflation is very low. Mm. But to your point, you look at things like the cost of housing, certain segments like the cost of healthcare, um, things that people actually spend a lot of money on, mm. um, those prices have actually been rising quite fast. It's uh, yeah, astonishingly fast in some areas. So uh, a couple of things then for people to think about. Probably one that is most imperative for some of our listeners, but I imagine all of our listeners at different points in time, and that is liquidity risk. So most of our younger listeners would not remember a time where you couldn't get your money out of something. Uh, maybe a term deposit if you ever had your money in a term deposit and you want to break it early, but with yields where they are now, it probably doesn't make that much difference. Um, older listeners though, and certainly I remember it very well during the GFC, there were a lot of funds that locked up and they were across the spectrum. They weren't exclusively credit related. There were a lot of hedge fund type products that, that locked sure. up. Uh, would not allow, not only did they not have daily pricing, they didn't have even weekly or monthly or quarterly redemptions yes. and suddenly they would just close to people. This is particularly difficult for pension holders. So anyone who's listening who's got a pension but missed this, and I hope you did, uh, it became really problematic for people because your pension was priced, including that asset. And when you had to take your annual minimum, so if you had an annual minimum of 8%, depending on your age, and you had an asset in there that was 20%, but it was completely illiquid, you found yourself in quite a difficult situation having to draw down on other assets while this other thing sat there frozen and often valued much higher than it was clearly going to be worth when they finally unfroze it, if they ever did. So that's an extreme scenario and hopefully we don't do that again. But do you see liquidity risk being a problem for people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is one of the biggest risks we see. So we talked earlier um, about the risks in fixed income and we talked about duration risk, interest rate risk and credit risk. So those are the obvious things that most people will focus on in this space. Um, Liquidity risk, we think, is um, the most underappreciated risk in um, fixed income markets not just amongst retail investors, but surprisingly even amongst professional institutional investors. So when you talk about your professional investors being super funds, and in the US they call them pension funds, even mm-hmm. though it's accumulation and pension by our, using our terminology, yeah. managing liquidity risk has to be, what, possibly the most important thing when yes. you have payments to make yes. that are literally people's life savings so you are effectively supporting them from the day they retire mm-hmm. to the day they die because a lot of those are defined benefit type pensions which are not as common in australia anymore that's a bit disturbing that that's not top of mind yeah. for them. well I, I think liquidity risk as a concept is certainly top of mind for them mm. i think um what where we see it being um underappreciated is Um, very much in this whole reach for yield dynamic that's played out within the credit market. So 
um, you've got to make a distinction here between the two two types of fixed income investment. So you've got, let's say, high quality government bonds. So that's you know Aussie government bonds and so on. Those things are very, very liquid and remain liquid even in stressed environments. We saw that in 2008. And that's because there are um, various support mechanisms, regulatory mechanisms and so on to keep those markets functioning. And those markets are like the plumbing of the global financial system. So regulators, central banks make sure that they function all the time. The other side of the fixed income market is um, sort of loosely collectively labeled as the credit side of the market. So those are corporate bonds, loans, things like that, bonds issued by companies. What has happened since 2008 is that trading liquidity in that market, meaning the ability to buy and sell bonds, has structurally deteriorated. Unlike equities, which trade on exchange, and you can go out there and buy and sell stocks pretty freely, however you want, The corporate bond market is entirely reliant on banks using their balance sheets to act as an intermediary. So if a fund manager needs to go and sell bonds, if I need to go and sell some bonds, I need to call up a bank like NAB or, or whoever it is and ask them to buy those bonds from me. They will then turn around and buy, sell those bonds to someone else and make a margin. That's how that market works. They need to use their balance sheet to facilitate that. Since 2008, because of regulation, and cost of capital constraints, bank balance sheets around the world have shrunk a great deal. And therefore, liquidity in that corporate bond market has become severely compromised in our view. The reason that hasn't been obvious yet is that so much yield-seeking money has been flowing into that market that there's always a buyer for those bonds because there's so much new money coming in. So it hasn't been a big issue yet. When it does become an issue is if money starts to flow out of the market. And what we're particularly concerned about is lots of fixed income investment vehicles um, like ETFs or mutual funds that offer their investors daily liquidity but hold large amounts of these bonds Mm -hmm. that have actually become less and less liquid. So if you hit some kind of adverse market environment and people try to pull their money out en masse from these types of investments, they will then not be able to sell those underlying bonds to be able to satisfy those redemptions. And just like in 2008, uh, they might either have to take a huge haircut to get the money out or the fund just locks up. Um, That's a big risk that we see, sort of a systemic type of risk that we see in fixed income markets. So, you know, for your listeners, I I think, you know, thinking about your broader portfolio, um, I think it's really important to have, again, going back to this idea of a balance of risks in the portfolio, different things that behave differently in different market environments so that everything doesn't go down at the same time or everything doesn't get locked up at the same time. That point about things getting locked up, the um, the point you make about taking a haircut is interesting. Uh, For anyone who wants to uh, watch a simulation of how that might happen in real time, if you see the film Margin Call, which was set during the GFC, there's a really sensational scene where he's trying to sell stuff and just dropping the price (laughs) minute by minute to find a buyer for, right? We start at a dollar and we work our way down. I think it clears it all at like 87 cents, but he's so relieved when he's out and he's like, I'm really happy to lose 13 cents in the dollar on this thing because the alternative is to lose 100. Yes, Mm. yes. In fixed income, we think interest rate risk is reasonably well understood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Credit risk is reasonably well understood. We think liquidity risk is greatly underappreciated. And again, it's very specific to that corporate bond market. Um, Government bonds, um, if you want something that behaves um, in a truly liquid way and you have the ability to get that money back when you need it, particularly in a stress market environment, 
we have much more confidence that government bonds will fulfill that role, yeah. much less confidence that any kind of credit type of investment will fulfill that role. Question without notice. In that environment where, where there's a real structural break, right, so the liquidity risk comes to the fore, people can't get the money out, does that create greater pricing anomalies for you guys to oh, exploit? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you would love that, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, I mean, the nature of what we do is all about looking for mispricing between similar things. And what we find is, um, you know, we were all doing this during 2008. Um, that kind of environment is a fertile environment for doing this because you get greater dislocations. And the reason that happens is, big pools of capital have to shift around to reorient. Mm. So I mean, a good example, as you alluded to this earlier, is that last year, everybody thought rates could only go up. And so large pools of capital were positioned that way. Suddenly this year, everyone thinks that rates can only go down. Mm. And so you get these big pools of capital reorienting themselves to try and reposition. And in the process of doing that, they create basically a lot of mess in markets. And that's the relative value mispricing that we look for. The analogy that I use with our investors is like a big ship turning around the ocean. It creates lots of ripples. So a conventional strategy based on trying to predict market direction is trying to predict which way that ship's going to turn. We don't do that. We wait for the ship to turn, and then we look at the ripples for signs of mispricing. The more volatile markets get, the more the ships are turning around because they're not sure which way to go, mm. uh, and they're turning more frequently as well. So volatility um, generally is a, is a very good thing uh, for a relative value type of strategy. It is quite interesting when, when large amounts of money have to move, the pricing anomalies come out quite quickly, right? You can't always buy everything you want at the price you want it. Yes. So much for people to be thinking about, and it's obviously an area that many investors obviously don't have any personal experience of, but observing it from a distance is always fascinating. Uh, anything that you're particularly concerned about at the moment? You've obviously mentioned liquidity risk is something that you think people... Uh, are not necessarily factoring in. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, the liquidity risk, I'd say, is probably um, top of mind for us. And the, and the way we construct our portfolios is to be well and truly immune from that type of risk because our investors do expect us to be liquid in mm. a stressed environment and be able to give their money back when they need it, um, even, you know, on 24 hours notice. Yeah, of course. Um, so liquidity risk. I mean, the other one I would I would I would say more of a general statement is um, just this whole idea of looking beyond labels. So not assuming that just because something is labelled fixed income or labelled a bond fund that it's going to behave a certain way. Um, there's a huge amount of difference between different types of bonds, what their risk profile is, the, the amount of interest rate risk you're exposed to, the amount of credit risk you're exposed to. Um, and the concern that, that we have is that sometimes in this whole uh, sort of desperate reach for yield, some of those risks can be forgotten. Um, and so that's, that's a concern for us. I think that point about people reaching for yields has led to some people coming unstuck in the past. Um, we see it on the equity side, actually. So a lot of investors who will buy stocks that they don't necessarily love, so they don't love the company or what it does, they don't believe necessarily that it has a great long-term future. Uh, and I won't mention any names, but you know, quite a few of them would be in our top 10, actually, where the yeah. investor doesn't love it. They don't love the underlying company, yeah. but they love the yield. And yeah. then when the company says, do you know what, we're not paying it this year, the dividend's not coming because we need to reinvest in our business, we're a little bit broken, mm. uh, it hurts people quite badly. And 
they probably had some inkling that the company was going to do that at some point because they knew that it wasn't a fundamentally fabulous company. It had a few issues it needed to deal with and you shouldn't be paying enormous dividends to your investors (laughs) if you've got to reinvest in your business. But it was their desperation for yield that led them there in the first place. Yeah, um, we saw an example of that happen in fixed income markets just last month where um, Argentina Mm. um, had um, a lot of political economic issues have uh, got close to the point of potentially defaulting on their debt yet again. It's not the first time they've defaulted many times in the past. Um, And their bonds um, dropped very substantially. Now, those were very high-yielding bonds. So two years ago when they issued those bonds, they were really, really popular. Uh, Now, not so much. Um, But, you know, the issue here is not whether Argentina was a good investment or not. Um, That's a separate issue. Um, the issue here is more around which types of funds were holding those bonds. Mm. Now, historically, you might think Argentina, emerging market, only emerging market funds would hold that kind of debt. But what we've seen because of this whole reach for yield dynamic is those kinds of higher risk bonds have made their way into other types of fixed income portfolios, which an investor looking at that fund might think, oh, well, it doesn't have the word emerging market in it, mm. therefore I should be immune from that. Uh, only to find that they're down substantially in August because the fund actually did have a large holding in Argentina. And so this, again, going back to this idea of looking beyond labels and really like don't assume that just because something is a fixed income fund, it's going to be defensive. Have a look at what's actually in the fund. How transparent are people with their holdings generally? Oh, the information's there if you're willing yeah. to look for it. If you yeah. have it to take the time yeah. to be able to see Yeah, it. it's all. I mean, the information is, is most funds will publish their holdings um, on their website. So it's just that very few people actually take the time to go and go and have a look. Take that time and, and invest it wisely in this particular situation. It, well, look, we all learned, and I know I keep alluding to the GFC, so I'm very sorry to anyone who wasn't interested in the GFC or wasn't alive and worried about it at the time. So I sound like an ancient person. Uh, so I remember being at university and they were always banging on about the Asian financial crisis. I was like, it can't have been that interesting. Um, <laughs> but the GFC was very much like that where all of that toxic debt in the US, the whole subcrime crisis, it was bundled up and sold to people as high quality credit, right? That was what started it all. Yeah. So are you seeing anything like that or is that, or is it more simply that there are little bits of not such great stuff and it's hurting returns? Yeah, I'd say it's more of that. Um, we're starting to see more and more of little bits of risk creeping into places where you might not expect them to be. Um, and that is, is the concern this time around. Are there issues? So, um, again, a question without notice, but it, there was some concern. So, again, things that people are very worried about and then they forget about and it's not an issue anymore. But there was quite a bit of concern last year about uh, various emerging markets and the amount of debt they had denominated in US dollars yes. that was going to really hurt them if the dollar remains really strong. Mm-hmm. And then everyone seems to have forgotten about it, to be honest with you. Turkey was the one that was getting a lot of press for a while there. Yeah. Is that something that's still hanging around as an issue for people? Oh, I think in the background it is. Um, if we start to get to a environment where um, let's say the US economy takes a different path, um, a stronger path to what um, the rest of the world does or Europe and so on and you find that the US doesn't cut rates as quickly as um, Europe is cutting rates or other economies are cutting rates, uh, you could find that the dollar starts to get strong again and that could put a lot of pressure on those debt burdens in those countries. There's a lot for people to think about there and all of those risks are relatively easy to understand not necessarily easy to discern to what extent they're affecting what you hold or what you have been thinking about holding how do you suggest people go about 
determining whether or not it's a risk for them personally? Um, get educated, I'd say. Mm. Um, there's, there's, you know, one of the great things now is we live in an environment where there's so much information that's available um, through podcasts like this or online websites and so on. Um, so I think that's the, that's the best defense you have is to get, get educated about what you're actually investing in. Um, so if it's a fund, go to the fund's website, have a look at their monthly reports, see what they're actually buying, um, and then have a think about whether um, you know, it, what, what they're investing is what you expected them to be investing in. I think that's also particularly true of listed securities. Uh, a lot of our investors love ETFs. They like being able to buy stuff that's on market. Uh, Sometimes that's a little bit too easy though, right? You don't have to download a PDS. You don't have to do the work to understand the product before you fill in a 27-page application form. (laughs) And because it's so easy, you may forget that that first step of understanding what's in it is quite important. Yeah, Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, the great thing about those kinds of products is ease of access and Mm. democratization of access to these things. Um, But, you know, I think it's up to investors to to be um, be smart about it and get educated before buying something. I think particularly for this asset class, which is a little bit newer for a lot of our investors than perhaps equities where they feel like. Yeah, and you know, um, the the risks um, can be more substantial than what you might assume from boring uh, boring bonds. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's the point, right? That was the whole point of this discussion was. Yeah, but you know, the flip side of it is is there's there's also a lot of other things you can do. I mean, one thing we keep saying to our investors is there's a lot more to fixed income than just buying bonds. So yes, you can have uh, more risk, um, but there's actually a huge diversity of return sources you can exploit as well, even when yields are very low. That's the exciting part, which is not necessarily something that everyone's got their finger on the pulse of a lot of the time. Gov, you and your team produce a whole lot of fantastic insights on these topics. They're pitched at a relatively sophisticated level, but fabulous for people who want to get a a more sophisticated understanding Mm -hmm. of the sorts of things that you're talking about. Where can people go to get on top of those ideas? Yeah, um, so our website, um, which is ardea.com.au, we have a section on there called Market Insights. Um, You can actually subscribe to get directly emailed when we publish something. Um, That's probably the best place. Gopi Karuna Karan from Ardea Investment Management. Thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm German Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.